Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they have followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. And this regarding Judah. So he said, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. Of Levi he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him, all those who hate him, so that they will not rise again. Of Benjamin he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. Of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath, and with the choice yield of the sun, and with the choice produce of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph, and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh, of Zebulun, he said. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. They will call peoples to the mountain. There they will offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Of Gad, he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, and there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. Of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. Of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, 
Take possession of the sea and the south. And of Asher, he said, More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks will be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, Destroy. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. So far the reading of our text this morning. Those last verses will be our focus this evening. And dear congregation, uh, there was a man uh, in the past named J.B. Phillips. Perhaps you're familiar with his name. J.B. Phillips was a, a man who translated the Bible, uh, the New Testament anyway, and he made it a paraphrase of the New Testament. And it's actually quite a useful book. I recommend it to you if you can find it. Uh, I don't believe it's in print anymore, but it's quite widely available. And it's a paraphrase of the New Testament. So when you read it, uh, you think of it as something of a commentary on the New Testament. And he took the words of the New Testament and he put them into the uh, into uh, language and thoughts that are clear to us. And and it's a it's a, a book. Well, J.B. Phillips wrote another book. J.B. Phillips wrote another book. The title of which is very instructive for us this morning. And the title of that book is "Your God." is too small. Your God is too small. Now, I actually haven't read that, that the entire book, but just the title I find very uh, instructive for us. Your God is too small. Because that's the situation with so many Christians in our day, isn't it? That their view of God is too small. They don't, they don't think of God in the scriptural representation of him as the supreme transcendent majesty and creator of all things. Now I think in our reformed churches we have tried very hard not to have a small view of God. And if you uh, read our confessional statements I think that that becomes very clear. But our view of God, our view of who God is, dear friends, impacts so much of our life and having grown up in, in, in our church and uh, with the teachings that we have here, which is a great privilege, of course, uh, we tend not to think about this so much. We tend not to think of, of just what a dramatic and significant thing that is to have this view of God as the transcendent creator of all things, who holds all things in his hands. He orchestrates all the events of history exactly to his preordained purpose. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. Maybe I could put it this way to you. If this is even possible, suppose you could step out that door right there and shed every 
idea that you have about God and even dismiss Him from your mind and soul entirely so that you became a complete atheist. Again, a horrible thought, but just imagine with me a minute that you could step out that door and do that. Now, what's the first thing you do as you stepped out that door? How would your life change? It would change. It would change dramatically. The minute you gave up this idea of an all-knowing, all-powerful God who sees and knows all things, your life would change very dramatically. And maybe that's a good way to kind of help us to think of just what a, what a massive thing it is in our life that we have this view of God as the transcendent creator of all things and the Lord of history. Well, that's really what we come to in our text this morning. Because now Moses has come to the end of his life. And that's really what you need to think about when you think about the book of Deuteronomy. That Moses has come to his last days. Uh, you might think of Moses on his deathbed. Now, of course, Moses didn't have a deathbed. In fact, the Bible makes very clear that Moses was strong all the way up until the end of his life. Right? He even, he literally climbed a mountain, right? To, to die. Uh, but uh, Moses was a very strong man. But at any rate, he knows that his time has come. And he's now giving his last words of counsel and advice. And in these verses, he's even pronouncing a blessing upon them. Just as I am privileged to do from week to week at the close of our services, Moses is now going to pronounce God's blessing upon his people Israel. And that's what you have in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that's why when we have the book of Deuteronomy, we have a repetition of the law of God. In fact, one uh, scholar who I was reading said it's like an every man's Torah. In other words, it's the, all the detailed laws of God that you have in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, right, are now repeated as in a more popular form. A, a, as in a, a, you might say Moses brings it down, down a level, right? He makes it an every man's Torah. A, he, he, he presents the law in a more memorable, in a brief, abridged way. Kind of like what uh, uh, people will do, right, with, with books that are very large and very detailed. They'll offer an abridged version. I'm just thinking to myself right now of uh, the professor of theology at Calvin Seminary, Louis Burkhoff. In the 30s, he wrote a very large book, a beautiful book of theology. I hope you all have it. It's a beautiful book of theology. And, but then he also, uh, he wrote a much smaller version called A Summary of Theology. And he took his big book and he summarized it just in something that could be used even in a Sunday school class. And then he went one step further and he summed that down even more to a very thin book. I forget what that one's called. But it's, uh, he had three versions of his theology. The big one, the medium one, and the little one. And we're so thankful that he did that, right? Because some of us need to start with it on a little lower level. And that's kind of how you can think of Deuteronomy. It's an abridged, it's a every man's Torah. Now, the rest of the Bible, the prophets, understand Deuteronomy to be then a sort of constitution for the Israelite nation. Now, the Israelites, of course, were bound to obey all the laws of God, but Deuteronomy became for them like a constitution. It became the defining document of the Israelite nation. And whenever the Israelites had to uh, understand their own behavior, their sin, or their obedience, whatever it may be, 
Deuteronomy always became the law for them. In fact, I also wrote down on the outline there, Josiah. Because you'll remember that there was a time when Josiah uh, was repairing and re uh, renovating the temple, and they discovered what they called the Book of the Law. Now, what was that Book of the Law? Well, very likely, that was a, the Book of Deuteronomy that they discovered. And you'll remember it set them into great consternation because they read the curses, uh, which actually we read recently here as well. But they read the curses uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and they were terrified because they knew that those were the judgments that God was going to bring on them. So that's the book of Deuteronomy then. It is Moses' last words to the people of Israel, and it's an abridged, a shortened form of the law of God, put in a, in a, in a way that Israel can easily understand and even memorize. And that's what it became. And throughout Israelites' history, the prophets always used the book of Deuteronomy as the defining document for their own preaching. One person also called it preached law. That Deuteronomy is preached law. So in other words, it's not the, the book, the law that you might find in the books of the law, right? Codified in the books, right? We might find like in a lawyer's office, you might find right volume after volume of, of civil law, right? But now it's law that is preached. It is law that is taught to the people of Israel in a way that they can grasp it and understand it. So that is how we are to understand the book of Deuteronomy. Now let's come then to our text here in Deuteronomy 33. Would you turn there with me in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33? And if you'll turn to the last verses of that chapter, I want to start our understanding of these verses by, with verse 29. Because this is the conclusion. And I want to begin with the conclusion this morning. And Moses' conclusion, after going through all these different blessings of each of the tribes, he cries out, Blessed are you, O Israel. And here I actually prefer the old King James Version, which says, Happy are you, O Israel, O people blessed by the Lord. Happy, blessed, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word that speaks of, the, of the, the great privilege and happiness of the people of Israel. Happy are you, O Israel. That's the conclusion. And why? What is the reasoning? What grounds does Moses have for pronouncing the people of Israel so blessed? Well, you can find that uh, in the previous verses. So let's look at the first reason then. Why does Moses pronounce Israel so blessed? And the first reason you can find then is in verse 26. This is actually the text of the sermon. And the reason given us there, there is none like the God of Jeshurun. Now the word Jeshurun there, congregation, is, you might say, an affectionate term for Israel. God uses this to refer to his people. And it's a term of affection. It's a term like a parent might, might use for their child, right? When they, when they wouldn't call them by their real name, but they would call them by some affectionate name that the child has been given. And so here you have Jeshurun. And you can see even in your pew Bible there, the footnote says that Jeshurun is just the same word as Israel. Well, it's a different word, but it's referring to the same group of people. So, Jeshurun. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. So there it is. Israel is a privileged, a happy people because their God is like no other God. Verse 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. And you can see, congregation, the who this God is. That He's not just the God in heaven, 
But now look at this picture. In congregation here again, you have to see the picture. Right? So much of the Old Testament is given us in these pictures. And children, this is for you this morning as well. See this picture. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. And here you have to imagine a man on a, on a horse. Only now it's not a man, it's, it's the Lord God, the King of Kings. And he's riding upon the heavens because he's so great that there's nothing big enough, there's nothing large enough that can hold him as it were. And so he rides upon the heavens of heavens. And look what he's doing. He's riding to your help. Now this, this, uh, this week, my wife and I went on a vacation. And we were down in Kentucky and we went to visit some friends of ours there who, live on a, or who were staying in a cottage. And it was a very strange cottage because it was very much on an incline, a very steep incline. And that incline had a sidewalk that went down to the river, to the channel there, to the water. In fact, if you, if you went down that sidewalk, you'd land right in the river. You'd go right down into the water. And it was very steep. It, it, you, to walk down it, you really had to work to, to, uh, to, stay, to stay up. Well, you can imagine when my little girl, Julia, started to walk down that, that, that uh, sidewalk, she couldn't keep herself back, right? She started to go down faster and faster until finally she was just trying to keep one leg ahead of the other. And that's when my wife noticed it. And she gasped and leaped up. And she ran after her. And of course, as soon as I heard her gasp like that, I vaulted out of my chair and went after her too. And there's the two of us, you know, running. And, and fortunately, I'm glad to say we caught her before she landed in the water. But my whole point with this congregation is when my wife saw Julia going down those, that sidewalk, going down that hill, going faster and faster, just about ready to lose it and to tumble into the river, she did not sit in her chair and ponder what to do. She did not turn to me and say, Honey, what do you think we should do about our daughter who is... Uh, that's ridiculous, isn't it? We leaped out of our chair. We, we, we raced after her. And congregation, that's the picture that's given us this morning. That God is riding. He's, he's dashing through the heavens at, at top speed to your help. He sees His people. He sees their need. And He's riding through the heavens to their help. And again... I want you to see that picture this morning in your mind's eye. That he does not sit idly by. He is not casually walking to help his people. He is riding as fast as the heavens will carry him, so to speak. Riding to their help. And again, this is the first reason given us why Israel is such a privileged people. Because they have a God who is riding through, their, through the heavens to their help. And through the skies in his majesty. Congregation, there's another reason given us here why Israel is so privileged and so happy. And that is reason number two in verse 27. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And really, congregation, this isn't that much different than the first one. Because again, it's about God, isn't it? But now the adjective given us is eternal. It's God, and He's riding through the heavens to your help. But He is the eternal God. And He is a dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Happy, blessed are you, O Israel, because beneath you is a God whose arms are everlasting. They never grow weary. They never grow tired. And he holds his people as a mother would hold her child. And what a picture, again, congregation, is given us. as such a tender and such a beautiful picture with this, this parental 
this motherly imagery that is given us of underneath our everlasting arms. Well, congregation, those are the two reasons given us for the happiness of this people. And what is the result? The result given us then in verse 28, so Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. Now these are all signs of prosperity. Grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Well, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And given us. There's one more thing I want to point out in these verses. Dear friends, if you look in verse 29 and you look at the, the second to the last clause given us there, so your enemies will cringe before you. And here again, I, I go back to the old King James Version, which gives us these verses slightly differently, although the idea is the same. I'll explain. It says, so your enemies will be found to be liars unto you. Your enemies will be found to be liars. Now the idea is the same here when it says they will cringe. In other words, they will cringe. They will, they will come before you almost... Uh, I hate to say this, but we have the expression, they're eating crow, right? They're, 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 they know they were wrong. They're cringing in self-humiliation and embarrassment and shame because they were found to be liars. The enemy said these things, but they were found to be liars. That's the idea given us there. Well, a beautiful result then that is given us. And congregation, I hasten on to my applications now. How do we see God in the first place? How do we see God? And again, I take us back to what we started with. Our view of God, dear friends, shapes so much of our life. And especially our life of faith and our walk with God is shaped so much by who is God. Congregation, I ask you this morning, is your God too small? And let me hasten to add, if you have a small God, you have no God at all. You do not have the God of the Scripture. The God of the Scripture cries out, there is none like the God of Jeshurun. And that's why in our theology we always say that God is infinite in His attributes. That God is not just loving, but that He is love itself. That God is not just holy, but that He is infinitely holy. That God is not just just, but He defines justice. He is the source of all justice. He is infinitely just. There's never the least smidgen of transgression in him. Everything that he does is exactly in accord with his own justice. This is who God is. In congregation, you know there are Christians then who see God in all sorts of different ways. Some Christians see God as a very distant God, as a God who built or who created the world and now who just kind of leaves things to themselves. And this is how they live. We call them practical atheists. Yes, they believe in God, but he makes no difference in their life. And they have very little to do with Him. They're, 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 they're not theoretical atheists. They, they, they still confess that there is a God. But again, God makes no difference in their life. Others see God as a stern lawgiver who demands that do this. Don't do that. You mayn't do that. Watch out for this. You're a sinner. You sin. You're guilty. Don't do this. Do this. Do more of that. And that's, that's how they view God constantly, all the time, as a stern lawgiver. 
Again, they have a, a warped, a, a misshapen understanding of who God is. Do you remember Martin Luther? Remember Martin Luther, the great reformer? What was his view of God? Remember Martin Luther's view of God was a God of infinite justice who was going to crush him for the least transgression. And you remember how Luther tortured his body. He fasted for days on end and, and tried to follow all the minutiae. He crossed every T in a vain attempt to satisfy his understanding, his misunderstanding of the infinite justice of God. That was his view of God. Well now, congregation, our text this morning gives us a view of God that I want you to take home with you, that I want you to take into the week with you. I want your faith to fix on God as our helper. That's the view of God we're going to have this morning. Now that's not the only thing God is. There are many other things we could say about God. But this is the teaching of our text this morning. To see God as our helper. God as helper. This is what I want. This is, you might say, this is work for your faith this week. To think of God as helper. There are many other things we could say about God. But this morning, God is teaching us, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. As the psalmist says, and as repeated again in Hebrews 13. And again, if you, if you can put yourself this morning in the shoes of Moses. Because look at Moses, right? He's standing at the end of his life. And there's many in our congregation who can stand with Moses because you've also grown old in the service of the Lord. But there's Moses standing at the end of his life. And he looks back. He looks back. And what is the faith of Moses busy with? He can see all the way back to the Red Sea. And how they stood before that Red Sea, that vast body of water before them, the Egyptians coming behind them, and certain destruction staring them in the face until suddenly God says, stretch out your rod, Aaron, and the waters part. And Moses can stand here before the children of Israel and he can say, I remember. I remember what happened. God rode on the heavens to our help. And he came and he parted that water. And shortly thereafter, congregation, as they were going through the wilderness, Amalek, remember, attacked them from the rear. And do you remember what happened then? Right, that God put Aaron on one side of Moses and her on the other. And Moses held up that same rod. And Amalek was defeated. God, our helper. Later they came closer to the land of Canaan. And they faced down Og, king of Bashan. And Sihon, remember him? Sihon, king of the Ammonites, with a vast army. And they destroyed every one of them. Here's Moses, he looks back, right? And his faith is busy with all these historical events. But they weren't just historical events, were they? They were acts of Almighty God riding on the heavens to their help. And I think all this was in Moses' mind as he cries out in triumph. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. And so, congregation, that's my first point. How do we see God this morning? And this morning I want you to see God as your helper. God as your helper. 
And let's come then to the second point, congregation, because I know how that is in the life of faith. In the life and experience of God's people and of God's children, there can, there can be those, those times when we just don't see it. We don't see it. Perhaps you're in trouble right now. Do I speak to someone this morning who is in trouble right now? Who finds himself in a crisis, in a situation of some kind? I have no idea what it could be. But it's very real to you. It's very present with you. You carry it into church. You carry it out of church. And you say, preacher, this morning I don't see God riding to my help. I don't see Him as helping me at all. It feels much more like God has abandoned me. Like He's left me. Those times are real in the life of God's people. And that doesn't mean you're not a child of God, congregation. But it does mean that maybe you're missing God's help. And maybe you need to look at your situation more with the eyes of faith than with the eyes of the flesh. And will you look with me this morning at the text? Because I want to look again at Moses. Because not only can Moses remember the Red Sea, not only can he remember Amalek, Og king of Bashan and Sihon king of the Ammonites, but Moses also can remember Meribah. What happened at Meribah? Congregation, would you turn in your Bible to the next chapter, Deuteronomy 34 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 34 and verse 4. And Moses is now on Mount Nebo. He's left the Israelite nation behind. And God speaks to him. And what does God say to him? This. In other words, it was spread out before him. All right? He can see the whole land of Canaan. This is the land, says God, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And continue reading with me, please. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Now, congregation, this is the same Moses who says there is none like the God of Jeshurun. And yet Moses knows full well that God will not let him go into the land of Canaan. It's almost as if you want to say, Moses, can you really say that this evening? Can you really say this in the evening time of your life? Can you say this right before God is going to take you out of this world? Moses, can you say that there's none like the God of Jeshurun? Even as you look and you see the fruitful plain before you, as you see the promised land, you think of all the hardship and the trouble that you experienced to come to this point in your life. And Moses, can you look at all that and can you say this morning, there is none like the God of Jeshurun, even though you know that God is blocking your way, that God is not going to let you go in because of the sin that you committed against Him at Meribah. Remember when He struck the stone and God had told Him to speak to it. And yet Moses' congregation, He still says, there is none like the God of Jeshurun. Maybe this morning you can't see God helping you Maybe you don't see him writing to your help, but congregation, may I ask you to put on the, the glasses of faith, to look with the eyes of faith this morning, and to see what Moses saw. Why can Moses speak that way as he stands on his dying day? 
because he knows and he trusts that God has all these things in his hands. He knows the truth of what we confess in the New Testament, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. My friend, my troubled friend this morning, whatever crisis you may be facing, do you believe that? I ask you to stand in the shoes of Moses today. You can imagine how painful that must have been for him not to be allowed to enter the land of Canaan. But he stands there. And in faith he cries out, There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to your help. That's a remarkable moment, congregation. When I see that in my mind's eye, when I see Moses standing there on his dying day, I see Moses standing in faith on the promise of God because he certainly can't see it with his eyes. What he sees with his eyes testifies to him that God has left him. And maybe that's you this morning. But by faith, he cries out, even when he can't see it, there is none like the God of Jeshurun. And dear friend, I don't know what you may be passing through this morning, but this is the truth of God's precious word. That whatever you may be facing, God has all these things in his hands. And it works together for your good. I put on there the question and answer from the catechism number 26. Because our catechism teaches us to understand this. And certainly the authors of our catechism knew this in a powerful way. But in question 26... The question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Congregation, I wonder if I gave you that question this morning and asked you to write out your answer. What would you say? What would you write there? I know what Moses would write. He would write, there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to your help. But here's what our catechism authors wrote. They wrote in the second part of that answer, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. You know, in the old translation of the catechism, it says, in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. And so, congregation, I ask you to see the love of God for his people, even when he brings them into times of discipline. And I also put that quote from Thomas Brooks there, which is kind of a quaint way of putting it, isn't it? As we sometimes preserve those things in salt that we cannot preserve in sugar, so sometimes God preserves his poor people in the salt of afflictions, in the salt of terrible dispensations when they would not and when they could not be preserved in the sugar of mercies. Well, I bring that, let's move then to my third point of application, congregation, because uh, there are people who will often testify that there was a time in their life when God was very near to them and when they felt God's presence. But they don't feel it anymore. And so they may confess, God was once my helper, but I don't sense it anymore. I feel like he's left me. 
again, very similar to the first, to the second point that I, I stated, but how doubly painful that can be when there was a time in our life, congregation, when we did sense the nearness of God very near to us. When we knew His presence. When we walked in the smile of His face, as it were. But congregation, there come times in the life of God's people when a shadow, as it were, moves over them. And when for sometimes unexplainable reasons, God seems to withdraw Himself. In the, in the canons of Dort, it speaks about uh, the face of the gracious God and how the godly looking upon His face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. And again, that's a deeply experiential thing, isn't it? This is not something you cannot even necessarily describe in words, is it? But there come those times in the life of God's people, and in your life as well. And I think our, our, our aged members here could, could testify to this, that there were those times when they felt as if God turned His face to them, when He turned His back on them. Well, congregation, again, our text speaks to you this, evening, or this morning as God who is our helper, but especially now to you, God says this, that He is an eternal God. He is an eternal God. And that underneath are the everlasting arms. You know, and mothers, when you hold your children, your arms grow weary. Right? You Finally, you have to put them down or you have to hand them off to somebody else. But God's arms never grow weary. He's the eternal God. Do you see that in our text this morning? In congregation, if I speak to one this morning, who at one time tasted the nearness and the grace of God in their life, but for, perhaps for whatever reason, feels that darkness, as it were, come over your soul. I ask that your faith, dear friend, would fix itself on this part of what God teaches us this morning, that He is an eternal God, that the arms beneath you are the everlasting arms. You know, we often say, look up. But this morning, congregation, I say, look down. See the everlasting arms of God beneath you. They never grow weary. He never drops he never slips. He carries you on His arms. And they never grow weary. And congregation, if, the, if that time has come in your life that, that a shadow has passed between you and the Lord. You know the old Puritans used to say that the sun is still shining even if a cloud has passed before it. And in the same way to you, congregation, the everlasting arms are still beneath you even if you don't sense it even if you can't believe it, even if your eyes and your experience in life tells you something otherwise, the everlasting arms of God, they never waver. They never shake. Well, congregation, my last point of application then. Oh, the, I want to read this from the catechism as well. I put that on the outline. It's so beautifully how the, our catechism puts this. Question 127 about leading us not into temptation, but delivering us from evil. It says, We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Beautiful words given to us from our catechism.
And now in the last place congregation, the who. The who are happy. And congregation, this too needs to be said, doesn't it? Because it's not everyone who may lay claim to this happiness. It is not everyone who is covered by this blessedness. And nor should we just make a, a rash presumption that this covers us. Just because we are in this church. Or just because we have been baptized. Or because we've been raised in a Christian home. Congregation, this blessing and this happiness is for the people of God. For those who have by faith entered into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ and His cross and His blood and His death. That's why, congregation, when we read there, blessed are you, O Israel, we should also understand that there's another side to that, isn't there? That if we are not amongst God's people this morning, if we have not, by faith, become one of God's children and been adopted into His family, then all the opposite, right? We have no dwelling place. We have no arms beneath us. We have no one to drive out the enemy before us. We have no shield to protect us. No sword to boast in. And so, congregation, there's a point of self-examination for us this morning. Are you one of God's people? Are you a member of that spiritual Israel made so by faith in Jesus Christ? And if you are, congregation, if before God and before your own conscience, you can say, yes, I am a blood-bought child of the King, then you should rejoice in these words. These are your words. This is what God says to you through His prophet Moses. Happy are you. Blessed are you, O people saved by the Lord. Congregation, what a, what a privilege, what a happiness that is. This is why we come to church. It's one of the reasons we come to church. To worship God for the greatness of what He's done for us. That He's made us His people. And that we can see Him riding on the heavens to our help. May God give you faith today and this whole week, congregation, to see God in this capacity as our helper. To His name be the praise. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, this morning you have taught us to see you as our helper. Lord, help us to see you in this capacity. And Lord, thou knowest, and you know, Lord, that there may very well be people here in this congregation who have trouble seeing that this morning, who have trouble to see that you are their helper, that you are riding on the heavens to their help. Lord, will you give them the eyes of faith, the same eyes, Lord, which you gave to Moses, who though he was under your discipline, yet he still cried out, Who is a God like the God of Jeshurun? There is none like him. Lord, I pray that you would bless the congregation this morning. Give them also to examine themselves on this point, and that we would not deceive ourselves on this all-important point, to know that we are your children, your people, and that we also are entitled to this blessed promise, not because of our works, but by faith in the Savior, who is God over all and blessed forever. Hallelujah. Amen.